fear that keep us uh, from surrendering to you in worship, in life, in heart, in thought, in work, in deed, in mind, in action. There's so many things that prevent us from really following you, but it's not because of you, it's because of us. And so God, this morning, I pray that uh, we are filled with a desire to seek you, to know your greatness, to know the greatness of your name, uh, to know your word, uh, to understand what your word is saying to us. And so that not only we can speak it into our own hearts, we've got to tell ourselves what you tell us, but then we also have to tell the world around us. And with that, I ask that you give Pastor Joe boldness as he teaches us your word today in the name of your son. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. So I just got to tell you, we're off the top. I'm uh, a little bit nervous. I feel like I might be in trouble for something. Today, my high school principal is in the building. My first thought was there might be something wrong with my diploma. But I thought, you know what, that'd be okay. If I went, I would kill high school now. I would crush it. I would be so good in high school. Um, Then I realized that would not be good. But uh, my high school principal is here, a man I love and uh, has had a huge impact on me. So Dr. Larson is in the back. If you want some garbage on me later, he's got it all. All of it. But it's good to have you here, brother. Thank you for coming all this way. Um, We're continuing this series on the life of Joseph that I've titled Surviving in Egypt. And just for for you that haven't been here, Egypt really is a metaphor for the world where we live and and how we interact with the world around us and the problems and the struggles that we face. And that's really what Joseph was doing in his story about how he was sold into slavery and then accused falsely of rape and put into prison and then going through all the turmoil and trauma that he had all throughout that God enabled him to remain faithful. He was in fact surviving in Egypt. This is week 11 of this series and I've titled this week's message When Egypt Has No Answers. So every human since creation seeks answers to spiritual truth. It's core to the human experience. Sometimes they find the answers in organized religion. Sometimes they find the answers to spiritual truth in atheism. Sometimes they find it through faith. Here's the thing, though. Egypt, where we live, is great at providing answers when the stakes are low. But when the stakes become very high, when things really get important, when understanding eternal truth, when getting answers to eternity is at its most critical juncture, Egypt often leaves us in despair. And often we don't realize our need for these spiritual answers and Egypt's deficiencies in providing them until we're in crisis. Emotional, philosophical, spiritual desperation, all these things often create a thirst for spiritual, eternal answers at our deepest levels as human beings. And what happens is when we get to those points, we tend to reach out to trusted Egyptian sources for answers. And we come up empty. And then hopelessness ensues. 
People reached to these trusted Egyptian sources for those answers and come up realizing I may have been trusting in the wrong thing all along. It leaves us with no answers, floundering in uncertainty, questioning the meaning of life. The fact is, a full understanding of answers provided by science, philosophy, all of that, while good things, is irrelevant if it is not reliant on absolute spiritual truth in the end. Because if these answers from science and philosophy and math and culture, if these answers leave you with no comfort in your despair, no understanding of eternity, really, what good are they? Really, think about it. This is why there are times that Egypt cannot provide the answers that we seek. These are moments that God intervenes in our lives and actually provides them, and he often does it through his children, us. So with that in mind, let's read the passage today. Genesis chapter 41, 1 through 8. After two years, remember this is after two years of providing an interpretation of dreams to the cupbearer, and said, cupbearer, remember me to Pharaoh to get me out of this prison that I'm in. And the cupbearer didn't remember. It's two years later. <clears throat> After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile River. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And then behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them. And stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. Sounds like he had some pizza before he went to bed. I don't know. <laughs> That's a pretty vivid, lucid dream, you know. Verse 5, and he fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. This is like the sequel, which never happens, right? Like sometimes you wake up, well, I'm glad that dream's over. And other times, so I wish that one continued. Well, this one continued. I think it's a sign of God intervening. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, there were seven years of grain, plump and good, and were growing on one stalk. Just so you know, like seven good ears of corn on one stalk means like that's a good crop. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So like we do at Grace Life, we look at each passage under three lenses. The historical, what about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? The, the spiritual, what about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? And then and only then can you understand the personal. What about me? What am I supposed to do with this passage and why and how do I do it? So let's look at the history of this. I want to talk about a king's nightmares. What I want you to do in this section is, if you can get with me, I want you to feel the sense of desperation on a part of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, when his nation, his culture, had no answers. He is, in fact, the dreamer in chief. And let me explain what that means. Egyptians, we talked about this last week, Egyptians almost worshipped dreams. They were an incredibly important part of their culture, of their science, of their understanding. And Pharaoh would obviously be the most important dreamer in all of the kingdom. 
Because the king was supposedly had this supernatural connection with the spiritual world would have pretty important dreams that the nation needed to hear. Thus, Pharaoh's dreams were definitely the most important in all of the land. And he has these back-to-back dreams. He has two dreams that trouble him. Cows out of the Nile would have been a normal thought process because, you know, the Nile River was very important to the Egyptian culture and the Egyptian economy. And the cow and the Nile was the reason that you could have good cattle and, 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 and lush fields where the cattle could feed. And so the Nile was very important to that. So the idea of cows coming out of the Nile would not be a stretch to understand. The river provided refuge for the cows from heat and flies. But then the dream says these seven healthy cows are consumed and eaten alive by thin, ugly cows. It's a frightening thought, certainly. Then the sequel dream, he wakes up. That was bad enough. He wakes up and he says, okay, well, I'm glad that was just a dream. Then he has this dream about seven healthy, plump ears of corn on one stalk. And they are swallowed up by thin, rotting ears of corn. You can see how the leader of a culture obsessed with the spiritual meaning of dreams would be troubled by these two back-to-back, very similar, seven-numbered type of dreams. Certainly it means something. This is not a coincidence. The gods have given me this. I have to find out what it means so I can do my job as king. So he calls all his guys together. These Egyptian magicians, these wise men, They were very revered, and they were very important to Pharaoh. He was fully vested in them. He and his kingdom had invested a lot of time and training and energy and money into getting these guys to the place where they could be relied upon in just this type of scenario. They represent the best of Egyptian worldly knowledge and science. And let me just make sure you understand Egyptian science was not all fairy tales. Much of it was very good science. It was very true. Science had been developed and math had been developed to a very high level in ancient Egypt, particularly at this time. They were not dumb people. Trust in Egypt and their truth ran deep. Egyptian culture invested massive resources into its development. Every facet of Egyptian culture, every facet of their existence was tied to their belief system, unaware that it was a counterfeit one. It was not questioned. It was revered. They had a situation where they had a confirmation bias. Egyptian elites put all their faith in this Egyptian system, not just scientifically and philosophically, but especially spiritually. The most important men on his staff, these are the best of the best, scientific and spiritual and intellectual elites, yet they had no answers. I imagine that they're searching through their manuals, Thousands of pages written about this topic of dreams and the science behind them. They're looking for clues, answers based upon their understanding, their worldview, their confirmation bias that they hold the truth. 
and what Egypt and Pharaoh had relied upon their whole lives to this point now fails him when he needs it the most. At the most crucial moment in their lives, the system had no answers. Except for a prisoner in jail. They were forced to rely on a Jewish accused rapist who by chance had been given by sovereign God the gift of faith. So that's the history of the passage. I want to talk about the spiritual. What about God? What does he do? What God does in this story is he begins to reveal truth. I want to talk about Pharaoh's life before truth. The night before he went to sleep, <clears throat> Pharaoh did not know he needed truth desperately, even though he did, right? He just was unaware of the fact that he didn't have it and he was going to need it. He thought he had it all. He was the king of the most powerful nation on earth at the time. He had tons of wise men. <clears throat> he had a whole library and culture founded upon Egyptian spirituality, except he didn't. I imagine Pharaoh that went to bed that night was a very different one from the one that woke up. Imagine living your whole life under a cloud of spiritual ignorance, a facade of peace and comfort and understanding and safety. Imagine the feeling when suddenly your eyes are open to the fact that you have been wrong your whole life. And what does God do? God does an amazing thing. He designs a personalized revelation. See, God can use any circumstance or human predisposition to reveal truth that is in line with his word and his will. He's not limited. He doesn't have to do this, mind you, but he knows what we need. He knows what people need. And by grace, he interrupts our lives with truth that we can embrace and understand culturally. It's uncompromised truth, mind you. Not soft-pedaled, not changed, but it is packaged in ways that feeble humans in desperation can receive and comprehend. It's part of what makes our God so different, so special, so different from other religions that require human effort to come to them for answers. God does the reverse. He goes to his people and gives them. Even when they're not looking. In a manifestation of what I believe to be grace and mercy, and you'll find more about that next week, he uses this sincere yet flawed, failed system of wisdom in Egypt to speak. He uses dreams. Not only dreams, he uses Pharaoh's dreams to speak to him in a way that he would understand. If you remember correctly, I preached on this a couple of Christmases ago. He did the same thing with the wise men, did he not? He gave specialized revelations of truth using constellations and science and old books. These were very wise, learned, educated men. And he said, listen, I want you to go meet the king of kings, Jesus. He's laying in a manger 
follow this star, this unusual star that they had read about and they knew about. And he said, you know, God gives them a message and, he, and they're confirming it through their knowledge and information. It was specialized revelation for uncompromised truth that God wanted to give these three wise men to make a journey that went three years at least to go see Jesus. See, God does this. But he does it with perfect timing as well. In addition, he uses these uninterpretable dreams <clears throat> to bring Pharaoh to a place of desperation. For his purposes, God actually hides the meaning of these dreams from the experts. I mean, you would think they could have at least faked it, right? Maybe tried to at least manipulate Pharaoh. I mean, how hard could it be? There are seven plump cows. There are seven thin cows. The thin cows eat the plump cows. Look, there's a famine coming. It's not that hard, right? Well, we're in hindsight, of course, you know. But they can't give an answer. None of them can provide the answer that Pharaoh needs. And Jesus explains that understanding spiritual truth comes from divine enlightenment. Not human effort. He says this in Matthew 13, verses 13 and then 16 and 7. This is why I speak to them in parables. Jesus did this. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Truth and spiritual answers come from God and he empowers us with it through his spirit. Matter of fact, there's another verse in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 10, 11. These things God has revealed to us through the spirit for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God for who knows a person's thought except the spirit of the person which is in him. So also no one, get this, no one comprehends the thoughts or truth of God except the spirit of God. So where truth is understood, it is evidence of God's spirit. And as we have learned in Ephesians chapter 2, God brings about these moments for his children at the right time, at the right place, as opportunities for service that they trip over when God puts his children in a position to say to Egypt, yeah, you don't have the answers, but my God does. As a matter of fact, we'll learn that next week. Joseph says, I can't interpret your dream, but God can. And he gives us the truth that we need, when, that Egypt needs in their time of desperation. So that's what God does in this passage. Now let's look at the person. What about us? What about you? What are we supposed to do? Why and how do we do it? There are times that you're going to be alive if you're a child of God, a follower of Jesus, that Egypt will need truth. This was my personal... Um, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, social media campaign this week. I put this up there. The world dismisses spiritual truth until it's faced with questions it cannot answer. Come on. Ooh, that was good. Come on, let me hear. Oh, that's, that's very good. That's very deep. That's what the world does. It dismisses these spiritual components of answering the questions about eternity until it is faced with questions it cannot answer on its own. And listen, I want you to understand something. Truth on all levels is important. 
science, philosophy, math, all those things are important. I'm not discounting those. What I'm saying to you is they are a part of the bigger whole. Truth actually has implications far beyond this mortal physical world that dominates our senses, that screams for our attention every moment. Look at me. I have your answers. And it is really hard to look away. Egypt, though, often... This is important for you to understand, and you'll see this as you walk more and more with Jesus. You'll see where Egypt is actually thirsting for truth about things that it cannot see. It's good at finding the truth for things that it can see, but the things that it cannot see, it neglects. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the day that you were like Pharaoh, the first day in your life that you realized, wow, Egypt doesn't have the answers I need anymore? Do you remember it? Where you were that moment? What caused it? What brought it on? What did that day look like for you? I imagine that the circumstances were forcing you to have a consideration of some sort of connection to eternity. This is why truth matters. Ultimately, the most important truth that people can find is what happens at the end of life. What you believe to be truth about life after death will drive your core values, and don't say it won't. Life decisions how you spend money, everything. The implications of understanding this truth are staggering. We're talking about eternity, for goodness sakes. It's all or nothing. It helps you determine what's important, how you spend your time, your talent, and your treasure, even how you view and conduct all of your relationships. I mean, think about it. If you don't believe in life after death, then life on earth is all you have. So you might as well get as much out of it as you possibly can. Because once it's done, you're done. YOLO. That was my millennial reference. That was pretty good, right? But if you do believe in life after death, let's say you believe it is contingent upon religion and religious performance with a scale of good works versus bad works that result in a life of, frankly, religious burden, striving to fulfill the impossible task of earning salvation. Well, that's not good either. But God's children believe answers about eternity hinge upon faith in Christ on the cross and his resurrection. The fact of the matter is, each person in the world, each person in this room, are in one of those three camps. Either you don't believe in eternal life, or you do and it's up to you to earn it, or you do and realize, I can do nothing to earn it, I need Christ to do it for me. You're in one of those three camps. Either you don't believe in it, you're trying to strive for it, or you have put your faith and trust in Christ to get you there. But the stakes are so high with this concept of answers when it comes to spiritual truth. The stakes are so high, it is imperative that we know what God says on the matter. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, 
Paul says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their condemnation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that, it was, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now listen, I want you to understand something. This verse is not incongruent with science. In fact, in so many amazing, comforting satisfactory, emotionally, intellectually complete sort of ways, it affirms science. And we talk about these things actually in great depth on Tuesday night at Deep End, do we not? We talk about the amazing spiritual truth of God's word and how it affirms what we see that Egypt has discovered about science. It's pretty fascinating. Point after point, time after time, our faith can be affirmed by what we see in science. And this verse confirms that. If you ever want to come deep in and find out, come on, we'd love to have you. Just bring some food. (laughs) But see, this is why Egypt doesn't have all the answers. Because without the gift of faith, Egypt stops at things it can see. What's the point of trying to figure out things you can't see if you don't have faith? Faith is a substance of things hoped for in the evidence, the conviction of things not seen. That's why spiritual answers in Egypt will always be incomplete and unsatisfying, especially in your moment of despair. This is why Egypt needs us. Look, every person sooner or later, every person is forced to face the reality that the world's spiritual wisdom at very best is incomplete, but really it's actually just very flawed. By God's grace, many learn this lesson early in life. Some learn it later in life, and some sadly don't learn it till life is over and it's too late. Therefore, our role as God's children who have been given the gift of faith, which is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Our role as God's children is so critical as we strive to survive in Egypt. There is no one else in the world that can interpret true spiritual reality except for God and his chosen people who he has gifted with faith to see the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. He says this in Matthew 5, 13 and 14. Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are the salt and life of what Egypt needs. I love this next verse. 1 Peter 2.9. Look what Peter says. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All throughout the book of Revelation and all throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament, there's this concept of priests and who they are, doing the work of God, proclaiming truth, doing things, being an intermediary between the world and God. And in Revelation, it's very clear all throughout that we are the priests that God uses today. We are the intermediary between Egypt and the throne of God. And we are the ones called out to proclaim the completed picture. Egypt has some truth. 
But unless they can see the things they can't see through God's spirit, it is an incomplete truth. And we are called to complete that picture. Now, look, most of us won't be interpreting the king's dreams anytime soon. But we can and will be thrown into situations at any moment where Egypt desperately needs you. Egypt desperately needs God's people. This is what Joseph is a picture of in many respects. Joseph in this position is a picture of God's church. To declare the message of not religion and not religious piety and not performance and anything like that, but to proclaim what? The message of grace and love and mercy through the work of Christ on the cross. We, church, are the conduit to Egypt for understanding of how faith and eternity intersect with their lives, even if they don't know it. That's why it is important for us to invest time in learning and understanding God's truth and God's word. In addition, time reflecting, remembering, and celebrating that day, that moment when the lights went on because of the Spirit of God, and you said, wow, Egypt doesn't have the answers I need anymore. It's the reason God gave us the answers in the first place, so that we can be his priests, boldly providing truth in wise, effective ways to the world when Egyptian answers have utterly failed them. Heavenly Dad, we thank you so much. Not that you call us to survive Egypt, but you call us to impact Egypt. Thank you so much that when Egyptian answers fall short, when they fail, when they can no longer provide what we need, what the world needs, through your spirit, you enlighten us, you quicken us, you make us alive, and you help us see, oh, that's how it all comes together. And because of that, we ask that you would give us wisdom and courage. Because sometimes Egypt won't have the answers. But by your grace and mercy, we can.